The opinions expressed by the guests and contributors of this podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of Cornell University or its employees. Welcome to the Inclusive Excellence Podcast. June is LGBTQ plus Pride Month, a month that recognizes the 1969 Stonewall Uprising that took place at the Stonewall Inn in New York City. To honor this month, we have collaborated with the LGBTQ plus colleague network group at Cornell to create a special series called Beyond Binaries. Through this series, we will interview Cornell staff who identify as LGBTQ to share what pride means to them and celebrate the diverse lived experiences among members of the LGBTQ community at Cornell. My name is Anthony Sis. My name is Toral Patel. And you are listening to Beyond Binaries. Fola, thank you so much for being our last guest on our special series, Beyond Binaries. And so to get us started, if you just want to share your name, pronouns, your role here at Cornell, as well as some of your salient identities with our listeners. Sure. It is wonderful to be here with you. And again, my name is Fola. Most affirming pronouns for me are gender inclusive ones, which are Z here and here's. So Z went to the store to get a box of books uh, for here library. And uh, everybody's on a learning curve for the most part. So that takes a little while to get in people's vocabulary. He, him and his work as well. I have the honor of serving as an advisor to first-gen students, students of color, and or low-income students as a part of our Office of Academic Diversity Initiatives, and particularly our EOP, HEOP, and pre-professional programs. Um, and for those who don't know, EOP stands for Educational Opportunity Program, and HEOP stands for Higher Education Opportunity Program. And some of my salient identities are include that I identify as queer, I also identify as trans and I also identify as a first gen professional and as somebody who has crossed class borders and that I grew up fairly working class poor and am not in that class bracket anymore, although a lot of my life is influenced by it. And I also identify as white. I can't take out how I move through the world um, as a white person, even juxtaposed against all of those other salient identities. They all are always at play. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. And thank you for also sharing the examples with the pronouns, because that's one question that I often get in the trainings that I do around pronoun mm-hmm. use is, how do you use here or zero pronouns? And I'm like, well, let's look at some examples. So <laughs> thank yeah. you for sharing yeah. those examples uh, with your pronouns as well, your affirming pronouns. So, so I want to start off by asking you a question. So the question is, why is the rainbow flag? a symbol of LGBTQ pride? I mean, there's a longer answer and a shorter answer. So originally, the rainbow flag was actually, I think, eight colors, and it was designed by Gilbert Baker. And each color has a meaning as it reflects different areas of balance and well-being in our lives. So for example, red means life, hot pink, when we had hot pink stood for sex, Lavender often stood for spirituality, um, and so all of the colors really 
this may not be the official answer, but to me, really elevate the ways in which we are whole beings and not merely some one or only parts of who we are. That is like spot on. Like you got like a quarter through the right answer, which is amazing to me because I heard about this answer before looking up this question. But then when I actually looked at the answer, it's like, I feel like you were reading right off the script. So yes, you're right. It was created by artist Gilbert Baker. And you're right. So when you think about the different colors, it alludes to holistic parts of ourselves as LGBTQ individuals. And so as you mentioned, red stands for life. Violet slash lavender stands for spirit, as you mentioned. Pink, also sex, as you also mentioned. And then some of the other colors. Orange stands for healing. Mm -hmm. Yellow is sunlight. Green is nature. And turquoise is magic. And then blue is also harmony. So as you mentioned, there were originally eight colors. So that's what Mm -hmm. all the eight colors stand for. I've been seeing, which is interesting too, just kind of on on a side note to reference in terms of flags, I've been seeing a lot more people use the progress flag. So people, Mm -hmm. for folks who don't know what the progress flag is, it's the addition of the kind of triangle, sideways triangle on the left-hand side of the flag, which includes the trans flag colors as well as black and brown stripes to acknowledge black and brown indigenous communities within the LGBTQ community as well. And I I really, I I think, well, my hope is is that that will be the flag that continues to... Mm -hmm bubble up to the surface and be integrated into mainstream, not only US, but also global culture. Uh, I think it highlights more visibility of the intersections of our communities. And I would also add that um, the reason that the eight color rainbow flag, the original eight color flag was decreased to six was actually because I I think it was was either San Francisco or or New York, they had to shorten the number of stripes because they didn't have enough material to have the eight colors so they actually decreased the size to the six colors and that's where we have the six color flag and i think the progress flag is what maybe it's less than a decade old it is Um, yeah it was started probably within the last five to seven years yes that flag the progress flag we were just talking about was created in 2018 by daniel quasar in response to Philadelphia's Mm -hmm. updated pride flag, which included the black and brown stripes only, but not the incorporation of the trans flag or the trans flag colors Mm -hmm. in that progress flag. And so, yeah, so it is fairly recent, but I have been seeing a lot more businesses and folks using Mm -hmm. that flag this year, which was definitely different from even last year or years prior to as well. So, Which which I think is still my, like, I I think... I don't know how many listeners realize actually how revolutionary it is to have not only included black and brown stripes initially at Philly, but also the inclusion of the blue, white, and pink stripes for the trans flag. To have all of those pieces there speaks not only to intersectionalities of our communities, but also how our struggles were intertwined even in the first place, even prior to Stonewall. So for me, there's a lot about the progress flag that resonates for sure. Well, and I think that nicely transitions into the first question I want to ask you, which is <laughs> when you hear the word pride, like what feelings, emotions, experiences come to mind for you? You know, I, for me, I am always excited about pride. And, and sometimes that excitement is tempered with skepticism 
uh, seems like a lot of Supreme Court decisions come out in June. And and why is and that the case? <laughs> I don't know, but certainly there's some apprehension, you know, but for me, fundamentally, pride is about resistance and then celebration. Pride is also about liberation to me. And pride is about possibility. And for me, all of those pieces make me excited. And I think about the fact that some of my very first pride parades also coincided with watching PFLAG people. So parents and friends of lesbians and gays everywhere, though it's trans and pansexual and bisexual inclusive and folks without labels inclusive, you know, PFLAG chose to stick with their name because they've been known as PFLAG for so long. But to watch all of these parents and families march in support of their children, even as I've gotten older, there's something emotional that happens to watch that. And so I think for me, pride is also about family of choice. It's about family you don't know. It's also about the families that fight. It's also about sex and desire and intimacy. And I think all of that for me has, has typically had roots in resistance, resistance to who people said we were, resistance to growing up in a very ex religiously extremist household where I first learned about homosexuality along with fire and brimstone. For me, pride is about resistance to all of the ways in which we are socialized to be in general, but also resistance to gender roles and all of those things and resistance to the status quo. And in that, I think for me is celebration and joy and delight. Pride is delight and pride is also hard and it's hard for lots of folks. And part of it can be hard because they're not in a place where they can or want to be out. And it can feel really isolating to see lots of folks celebrating pride. And I think there's enough room in pride month for folks who have made different choices than me, for example. And also pride can be hard because we've, we know with HIV and AIDS, even though we know lots of things now and things are very different than they were when I was coming out in the early 90s. That doesn't eradicate the fact that we lost a whole generation of men and male-bodied folks. And we we don't have the benefit of those elders, you know, and conversely, breast cancer has taken a lot of women, and particularly lesbian women, and pride is hard because it's also a time where we remember who we've lost and who have been taken. So not only around health and wellness, but also about violence within our communities. And when I think about resistance, you know, pride didn't start out as a celebration. Pride started out because it was about resistance and particularly working class and people of color and trans folks saying, no, you cannot arrest us. You cannot suppress us. You cannot affect violence on us. This is not to happen and we you know that was stonewall but that was built off of the compton cafeteria riots out in california and also from the 1950s where our communities were creating spaces for ourselves even if it wasn't about being public not all of our communities and not all of our experiences and certainly not all of my experiences are about shame or self-hate or self-loathing um, there's a lot of joy in our communities. And so for me, pride is about joy and resistance. And I think resistance 
and joy. They're just as important now as they ever have been, maybe even more so, because I think that those things foster hope. Yeah, and I, and I think in, in summary, too, it also just sounds like a, a moment to reflect, right? Mm -hmm. To reflect on that resistance, to reflect on that joy, to reflect on all of the things that we still need to work on as a community internally, but then also externally mm -hmm. for our allies and to really revisit, like, what does that connection to the community look like for people who are not members of the community? And so I think in summary, that's what I hear a lot of. And I say this a lot when there's like a really good thing that is shared on our show. So for those who are listening, please rewind and listen to everything that was just said for a kind of a history Pride Month Crash Course 101, because you shared so much that I think for me also really resonated strongly. And one of the things I wanted to just extract and talk a little bit about is this notion of a chosen family. And so being able to really have this sense of familial ties and kinship mm -hmm. and connection without having them be biologically related to you. And so can you just share a little bit about that? You know, what does chosen family mean? How is that different from biological family and what that means within the queer LGBTQ context for you? So I think about chosen family. I also think about what Sheree Maraga talks about in terms of making families from scratch. And for those folks who don't know, Moraga is a out Chicana lesbian writer. And for me, I've been making family of choice or making family from scratch since I was much younger than I am now, in part because of my own family of origin dynamics. And also in part because, you know, when I came out, my family of origin was not very happy. And also conversely, the fact that I grew up fairly poor and working class meant that there wasn't anything related to being disowned. Like the benefit of growing up poor and, and queer and, and coming out as queer in college was that there wasn't anything monetarily that could mess with my stability there. And so I have been making families, you know, I, in fact, we were talking before the show started, like I'm going to go see some of my family of choice and my chosen family next week. And not all of the folks in my chosen family happen to be queer. I have a wide variety of folks who are my, part of my chosen family. A lot of them are queer. And that's, I think, on purpose. I think that's by virtue of us finding each other, making our families from scratch, where we show up for folks. We show up in the ways in which, when I think about what family means, family means that you may not always like each other, but you figure it out. And for me, chosen family does that. And I think for me, it's about being able to show up as yourself without any hesitation or apprehension. I know that my family of choice sees me uh, in ways either that the world doesn't or my family of origin doesn't or can't or healthcare providers like yesterday who continue to misgender me. Like my chosen family, they will always have my back. It's never a question. And that doesn't mean that we always agree in fact, we don't. We don't even agree about where we should go as queer communities. And I think that that's the beauty of having family of choice. So that at the end of the day, we want to make sure that we not only are alive, but that we are thriving. And to me, blood or not, that's what families do. Yeah, and I, I just want to just explicitly name language, right? The importance of language here. And so I think in reference to this question, I use the term biological family and you use family of choice, which I think, it, or family of origin, sorry. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a more appropriate, more inclusive language. And so I just want to acknowledge that and name that right for our listeners, and especially 
with the trainings that I do, I always tell people you've got to practice, you've got to learn. And so uh, I want to thank you for sharing that language with me and mm -hmm. for me to be able to kind of learn and grow to continue to use inclusive language. And so thank you for that. Uh, yeah, and there's just, I mean, we could talk about this for we can because <laughs> yes. I mean, really, for me, when I think about family, and I'll speak for myself in terms of kind of my identity journey, my family of choice was the one who really taught me how to survive and be queer in this world. Mm -hmm. So my family of mm -hmm. origin taught me kind of the basics of survival and the basics of navigating life. But when it mm -hmm. came to navigating life as a queer person, as an LGBTQ person, that lens and perspective is so different. And so my family of origin could not teach me that because mm -hmm. they themselves were not members of the community, right? And yeah. so my family of choice, and I really just give so much credit to the LGBTQ people of color, particularly trans women, trans women of color, especially who earlier in my identity development, like really taught me how to survive and thrive, not just around surviving, but thriving as well. And just seeing so many beautiful, powerful, resilient humans who also were trans and also women of mm -hmm. color uh, and who loved and embraced me so much. For me, it's like, I, I'm just, I feel forever indebted to the trans community for me, particularly because they taught me how to survive and thrive. Uh, mm -hmm. If it weren't for them, I wouldn't be the person that I am today. And it's just something that, you know, I continue within the work that I do, both personally and professionally, continue to just elevate and support their work, their voices, because people need to hear them, right? People need to hear, they need to hear their stories from their words, from mm -hmm. their lens, and not me as somebody who is on the spectrum, but doesn't like explicitly, which which that's another conversation, explicitly kind of identify as trans myself, you know, I, I can't come into this role. And this is also, I think, something from from an allyship lens that I think even people within the community can really benefit from hearing is like, if you have the opportunity to have this platform and you want to showcase allyship, don't speak over trans individuals or people from different lived mm -hmm. experiences from your own, you know, really use your platform and just pass the microphone, as I like to say, right, to say, you know, give folks the opportunity to share their stories and the podcast being one of them, but in a professional context, but even just outside of this, right, just to make sure that we're being mindful of how we engage folks who have different lived experiences than our own and just uh, making sure that we're not speaking over them if we're trying to showcase allyship, which is very important to me. Yeah, I concur. And and I love that piece about passing the mic. You know, I think in, as you spoke, I was like, hey, actually, I came of age where there were a lot of older lesbians in this small town in Kentucky. Like, that's where I came out. And they weren't. So, you know, there were a lot of white folks involved in that. But there were also women of color who deeply impacted me, even though they may not have known it, just by the virtue of them being out in the early, in the early 90s right, right. <laughs> and and also you know laverne cox talks about possibility models and those were the folks that taught me what possibility could be as well as the professors who were brave enough to teach and include queer writers of color and queer and queer writers in general and trans writers so for me like i also found a lot of my way and path by reading other folks. YouTube was not a thing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I was around when we were 
finding each other through GeoCities, which was not helpful, but there were other groups that you could find each other. But really, I mean, that's where I learned about, oh my gosh, that's where I learned about and read folks like Audre Lorde and Dorothy Allison and Shereen Maraga and Gloria Enzadula mm-hmm. and like all of these like powerhouse folks. And while some of our stories and paths were clearly very different, there were also elements that I could relate to. And those professors didn't have to include those writers because it was, it was dangerous. Like people, it wasn't, people could lose their jobs. And I was very lucky to have not only those professors, but also folks out and about in the community who also supported me as a college student who were like, okay, so how, do you know this? Have you been to Lexington? Um, do you know about this bookstore? What do you know? And then, you know, I came out also dancing in clubs. Like I'm not a great dancer, but to just go out and see us, you know, that's where a lot of my family of choice, like where we, where we went, we drove 45 minutes to an hour to Lexington from Berea to go dancing. And on some weekends we would drive three hours to Louisville, two and a half hours, depending on how fast three folks hours? drove. Wow. I think it was three hours. Maybe it was like two and a half, but wow. like, right. Like you, but to go dancing and to be with other people who looked like you, who were also showing same gender desire, like that was phenomenal in safe places yeah. or safer places, you know, right. things like the pulse hadn't happened at that point. Yeah. Yeah. The pulse so. uh, incident in 2016. Yeah. I think, mm-hmm. I think a lot about that as a queer person of color and just how, how sad that moment was even though I wasn't physically there, but because, you know, and I think ironically enough, like the, the community is kind of small. So I knew a lot of people who knew people in Mm. that shooting, in that incident where 49 folks lost their lives due to like a gun (sighs) shooting in a, in a specific night at a venue that was for queer and trans people of color. Right. And so, you know, I knew people who knew people who passed away and that was just hard to see. I mean, let Mm. alone just knowing that, my particular kind of intersection of identities was at a threat at this event, but then to also know people who knew folks, like that yeah. was just really, that was a hard moment. That was a really hard moment. And I'll never forget where I was that moment that that incident happened too. It's just one of those things like some other historical moments where people will always remember where they were. Like that for me will always be like, just, just so hard to understand and like really wrap my head around is like, how could somebody specifically target these identities that I belong to? And so, you know, you mentioned safer spaces because that for me was like the first moment where I felt like my safe space was no longer safe anymore. No matter what city I was in, whether it was Orlando or Miami or Chicago, or, you know, it's, that was like a real moment for me where I was like, oh my goodness, like people are out for me. But I think historically, right. People have always been out for, people like me, people like us within the community mm-hmm. as well. So it's just, yeah, I, I you know appreciate that acknowledgement because it's just like, yeah, especially in this month because it um, happened in June. Yeah, so. I didn't know that you knew people. Yeah, I didn't know them I, personally, but it was, I mean, it was just, you know, when you see the social media and people sharing, mm-hmm. like, oh my goodness, I knew this. You know, I, I remember one in particular who had shared that they knew this couple, this couple that was there attending that night and they both passed away and it was like, mm. and he was sharing that, they were going to get married and all this other stuff. And it was like, oh my gosh, like what? Yeah. And yeah. so it's just, yeah, it was, it was a really, really hard moment for me. And I know for a lot of folks within the community, even outside of the community too, just knowing that 49 people were lost and not all of them were also queer too. Like there were some, I remember this one woman hearing about her and 
she was a mother of her son who was uh, who was gay and just so happened to be there that night she passed away along with her son and that you know mm-hmm. that was challenging so just to hear those uh, kinds of stories yeah and i i also remember where i was i just sort of sat i think that was one of the very first times that i felt terror mm-hmm. like growing up and being socialized as female like you're taught to be afraid right like you carry your keys in your fingers you make sure you figure out where your exits are and all of that so i think there's often an undercurrent i think as a somebody who's queer there's also an undercurrent of knowing like being vigilant but not necessarily for me at least i didn't move through my life afraid i was so some days i was just like okay come on bring it um, yeah, right. <laughs> um but also you know i also i think part of it goes back to the fact that a lot of the folks that were possibility models for me their resistance was being able to live out loud and on their own terms and I think for me, the pulse gave me a huge pause because it it was not, it was very different than other, for me at least, it was very different than how other murders had landed, which I think also sent messages to whole communities. Like I think about Sakia Gunn, who was a young woman of color who was attacked in Jersey. I also think about Matthew Shepard, like, mm-hmm. yes. And also I think the, the piece about the pulse was that it was, so many. Yeah. There's so many. And clearly intentional or not, I mean, I think that sent ripples throughout multiple communities mm-hmm. um, across the country. And, and arguably about their around safety. the world too. Yeah, that's true. Because yeah. I do remember there was another incident in Mexico, I believe. And I I don't want to mm-hmm. don't quote me on this, but there was an incident, I want to say that same year where there were a, a number of LGBTQ folks at a club in Mexico that were also killed too. So I think about the kind of global implications mm-hmm. that I think that Pulse had too for folks within our community as well as outside of our community too. So Clubs have often been sanctuary, that how they were a sanctuary for me and how they have been that to other folks. Um, and I think that our communities are really adept at cultivating and sometimes carving out sanctuary for each other and ourselves, whether that's a club, whether that's going through a list of affirming spiritual organizations Mm -hmm. like the Unitarian Church. Like we are good finders in many ways because we have to be resourceful, um, particularly when we move to new communities. And sometimes even when we're in the same community, but we have shifted and decided to be differently out you know, that looks a bit different when you're trying to find resources and things. And I think we have often been sanctuary for each other. And I think for me, pride is often about sanctuary. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I know we've been talking about some heavier stuff. So let's let's bring it up to a lighter note. And I do want to ask you, you know, if you can share a little bit about that first moment where you felt truly represented and included, whether it was in a workplace context, whether it was in a different setting, you know, we talked a lot about a lot of settings outside of work, but, you know, thinking about what that moment was like, can you talk a little bit about that? I think one of the biggest moments was taking, like, going to the 93 March on Washington. Yeah. Right. Like, I, I'm, I'm a college student. My girlfriend and I at the time are riding in a friend's car driving to DC from from Berea, Kentucky to DC. It's like 
a long drive. I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and as we're going, we're like looking at people's license, uh, like their bumper stickers to figure out, like, are they going to the march? Are they going the same places? So at that time, like some of the bumper stickers that were out were things like hate is not a family value or the six or eight color rainbow flag, sometimes the lambda symbol, sometimes the pink triangle, which had been reclaimed as a symbol of pride and resistance from the Holocaust where folks who were deemed quote homosexual um, were particularly men were given pink triangles versus women and apolitical so women who were thought to be lesbians or apolitical were given black triangles so like we were looking for all of these things we're like okay is there anybody okay you know and we get very excited every time we would drive past like cars with those stickers and just to be you know, we slept on somebody's floor. I don't even know whose floor we slept, we slept on. I don't even know that we knew them. But to have all of these people at the metro stations flooding out and, and going and marching. And it wasn't perfect. You know, at that point, the trans folks were somewhat maligned. They were not part of the original speaking set. And yet there, I didn't have the language for me in terms of being trans. I think I had just read or would then read later that year, Stone Butch Blues, because my girlfriend was like, you need to read this. Fantastic. And I read it and like, (laughs) yeah, like, and you can read it for free. You can actually download a PDF of it and read it in one sitting. And I was like, oh, this makes a lot of sense to me. Uh Oh, this makes a lot. Ah, okay. But I also went to this march and there were certain representations of folks who were genderqueer and who were trans. It was the first time that bisexual and pansexual folks were included from the stage. And there were thousands, like thousands. Yeah. And you had folks from PFLAG and you had folks from so many different organizations. And I just remember sitting there like, I get to be a part of this. Energy was electric. It was, you could touch it. Like, I think that was one of the very first places where it was more than my family, my budding family of choice. It was more than stuff I had read or being part of the Kentucky Fairness Alliance. Like, it was more than that. It was, you know, when we gather en masse, there's something that happens, you know? And I think for me, that's where when I go to pride parades, like there's, it's about us gathering en masse. Even if that little mass is like, Itty bitty, like I, one of my prides, one of the prides I went to in Ypsilanti, Michigan, when I lived um, near there, was really small, but there was so much delight in the air, right? And so I think about that, and and I, I also think about when I've watched pop culture and watched shows that are now, like they're telling more of our vast amount of stories, mm-hmm. you know when i read well when i read dorothy allison i felt like included um partly because it was somebody writing from an appalachian voice right so i think there are all these snatches of moments and i don't think i think most of us and i'll just speak for myself i'm always looking for those places where i can be not only represented but also included and included from the get-go not as an afterthought i think people are always hungry to know that they belong And so those are some of the first places that that I thought about, you know, and I think subsequently in latter years, you know, I think about places I've worked where their non-discrimination policies included gender identity, 
gender expression and sexual orientation because it tells me at least on some level they're thinking about how those things are at play and those workplaces where it's then reflected in policy whether that's about adoption even if i'm never going to adopt like i want people to have access to those things or whether it's about insurance covering trans folks and hormone replacement therapy or surgery or some combination thereof or just wellness in general and how they define family in things like gym partnership or gym memberships. Colorado State and Cornell are two of the places that certainly I felt included and represented in a variety of ways. Thank you. Thank you so much for your vulnerability. And so as we wrap up our time together, we can go on and on about this conversation, but as we wrap up our time together, I would love to hear kind of your perspective, what you'd want to share with our listeners around, you know, what does advocacy look like beyond Pride Month? So we've talked a lot, a lot about what it looks like within the community, partially a little bit about what it looks like from folks outside. But as we move beyond past Pride Month, right, it's not just a celebration we celebrate for one month. It should really be something we celebrate and continue to advocate for beyond the month of June. And so what does that look like from your perspective? I think advocacy takes on a variety of forms. Sometimes advocacy is simply living your life and and living. That's advocacy, even if it's not deemed as such, right? Right. Uh, I think advocacy then not only for folks who are within our communities, but also folks outside can take on a number of different forms. So first, I mean, I think that's important to be educated. So, right. So folks may not know that last year in 2020, employment non-discrimination went through at the Supreme Court level. And there are also certainly lots of employers across the country that still do not have adequate, inclusive uh, non-discrimination policies. I think it's also important to know that aging elders within queer communities are also facing a scarcity of where they can live safely with one another, with their partners, um, and with staff that is not only friendly in terms of LGBTQ folks, but also uh, informed and comfortable. Uh, For me, it has to be all of those things. I think it's important to think about families to know that it is still okay in a number of states for states to discriminate on the basis of perceived or real sexual orientation and or gender identity and expression about whether folks can be foster parents or adoptive parents, in spite of the fact that Foster parents are overwhelmingly, I was just reading, and I don't have the the complete stat, but LGBTQ folks comprise more foster parent parents than their heterosexual or cisgender counterparts. Oh, wow. Um, I did not know that. You know, so I think it's important to be educated because we have not arrived in 2021. Brown and Black people and Indigenous folks, folks of color in general who are either perceived or actually queer in some way, are still being murdered, are still being beaten and violated outside of anything related to police brutality. I think already this year, 27 trans folks, most of them trans women of color have been murdered. So I think whether you're writing letters, you're educating yourself, you're participating in demonstrations or protests, or you're seeking to change policy, all of those things are are helpful and also inviting people in for conversations. You know, change doesn't happen overnight. 
protests and demonstrations are great for drawing media attention to one thing for a short period of time, shorter now, right? But that has to work in tandem with all of the other kinds of ways one can advocate and educate. It's ongoing, I think, right? And it's yes. the important thing. And what I always share with folks through my trainings is that even allyship, right? Like what that looks like and how does that look like? It's continuous, mm -hmm. it's long-term. You're thinking about how at an individual level you participate in some of these practices, systems that oppress other marginalized communities. And I think that's, you know, very similar to, to how we celebrate Pride Month and what advocacy looks like. And just to kind of go off of your education piece, I think this series alone, we have your story as well as four other incredible mm -hmm. stories that kind of highlight this diversity of lived experiences from people within the community. And I think that can, for some people, also be a way in which they showcase advocacy right to listen to mm -hmm. these stories and to really hear what it is that people are saying and share with folks outside of their network so shameless plug there yeah. but i think that's also <laughs> that's also the reason why you know we work collaboratively with the lgbtq cng for this series is to really just highlight the fact that even for people within the community pride means something so different mm -hmm. and that's okay right that these stories are real these stories matter they're valid and we should be celebrating them for their differences, not just for their similarities in terms of identities and, and shared identities within the community. So thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. I, I think this is such a, a great way, powerful way to end this series. And the last question I have for you before we wrap up is how have you or will you plan on celebrating Pride Month beyond Pride or even within the month of June? <laughs> sure. So... You know, um, my partner and I just started watching the series Pride. It's a six part documentary series about LGBTQ folks from the 1950s through the 2000s. They're 45 minutes a piece. So that's partly how we're celebrating. We are also trying to figure out what that's going to look like, right? Because so many events are online for Pride this year and rightfully so, in my opinion. And so, you know, I think part of it is also taking a road trip together and hopefully there will be some great things to document. I think going on road trips in June is always, well, for me at least, has always been a lot of fun because there are often surprises. Beyond this, you know, there are lots of uh, districts and towns and states that actually do pride outside of the month of June for a lot of different reasons. Sometimes it's about not competing with other larger cities, prides and things of that sort. So I, I'm always looking for where to go after June too. And I think that that's really cool because it also drives home that pride is not only relegated to one month and Stonewall and remembrance of Stonewall, pride and delight and resistance and sanctuary for us is all year long. And wherever we are, I think we create pride much like creating families of choice or chosen family wherever we are we can create those things and we are yeah. everywhere we are yes the old chant we are here we are queer we are everywhere i mean literally we are everywhere small yes. towns big cities mm -hmm. if, if you've been listening to the rest of the series you'll definitely i hope that message hones it across that we are literally everywhere Fola, thank you so much for spending time and for your vulnerability for sharing so much for our listeners, for myself as well, and happy Pride Month. Happy Pride Month. Thank you so much for inviting me to do this. It's so good to see you. 
For the latest updates on diversity, equity, and inclusion at Cornell, as well as resources to honor and celebrate LGBTQ Pride Month, be sure to visit diversity.cornell.edu. My name is Anthony Sis. My name is Toral Patel. Thank you for listening to the last episode of our special series, Beyond Binaries.